Our God in heaven, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the blessing to gather together and to dig into your word, Lord. To dig into your story, what you have revealed to be important to you, Lord. And help us to submit to your story on your terms. Help us to align our affections in that order, Lord. Prepare our hearts for worship so that we might approach you with joy and thanksgiving. In Christ's name, amen. All right. So last week, we're going over Exodus 3, if you guys could turn to your chapter again. Exodus chapter 3. And Lord willing, we will finish today this chapter and start chapter 1. Not next Sunday, because we have congregational meeting, and I have a trip to go to, so I guess maybe by the end of the month we'll get back to this. So finally go into the book by Dr. Morales. So Exodus 3. So we're going over the burning bush chapter as a way to understand what are the themes of the book of Exodus. And Exodus as a whole, as we've discussed, is going to be a it's going to be a theme for the entire Bible of what it means to be called and saved and redeemed by God. We have the, the, the settings, the plots, the characters, Pharaoh, the people of God, and understanding what it means to be called and be a people of God through the affliction in Egypt and Pharaoh. And how that theme is going to be repeated throughout Scripture. Why? Because our attention vanishes it. it we, we are constantly seeking other things that fulfill us for the enjoyment of their own sake rather than looking to God and Him alone for our enjoyment, for the purpose of our lives, for the focus and worship of our lives. And we see that in redemptive history. You have Egypt, you have a time in wilderness, and then you have a time in the land. And then you have the kingdom set up, and then you have exile, and then you have a return to the land. And then in the New Testament, you have Christ's work, his ascension up into the right hand of the Father, the millennial reign and the kingdom, and then what we look forward to, which is the heavenly city coming down on earth. What is God doing there? He is trying to seed into your understanding what it means, the depth, the meaning, the value of being saved, of understanding what you are being freed from. Death, oppression, slavery, not only from without in the serpent king, which is Pharaoh, which is ultimately a type of Satan, but also from within your own heart, from within yourself. Because everybody loves the idea of a land flowing with milk and honey and all these great things. But what's wrong with us is within us, in our hearts, that we seek those things and we forget the gift giver. We will value the gift and we will enjoy it to the fullest and then overindulge in it and forget God and His glory, which He gives us. So, that's why we're going through this book. In the last, last week, we, we kind of discussed the Lord as Creator, right? We, we kind of discussed the chapter is divided into two. The Lord as Creator is one of the themes. And then the Lord as... Redeemer. 
So the first section of, of the chapter is dealing with that, and we discussed how the walking in the cool of the day in Genesis 3 compared to the blazing fire at the beginning of the chapter. We see that, wow, things have changed. God had a, an open communion with man in Genesis chapter 3. He's walking in the cool of the day because this is his good earth, and he made it for his glory and for him to inhabit and indwell. And when he calls Adam, where are you? He runs away. He doesn't answer. But in this setting, he comes as a blazing fire. And he calls Moses, Moses. And Moses doesn't run away. He says, here I am. And we see how that motif throughout the Bible. First Samuel 3, God calling Samuel. And Samuel saying, here I am. The same thing. Well, the, this this father's call to come into the presence of God and to recognize him as father. To come with that intimacy and that union and communion that we had with God. God wants to restore that. See, when we look at Genesis, when we look at Genesis, we see two chapters. Not enough. Usually we say, oh my God. All these things that are happening here, all this mystery. But the rest of the Bible is going back to that and explaining those very two, those two chapters. And the meaning and significance of those two chapters. Because God is going to call back on them. And say, you remember when I did this? He did that with Adam. This is what I wanted. I wanted an intimacy as a father has with his son. When I call you, you drop everything and you say, yes, dad. Here I am. I'm here. I've dropped it. Why? Because I love you. You're the most important thing in my life. There's all this other stuff can go away. What doesn't wither is my love for you. And that ultimately is fulfilled in who? In Christ. His love for his father. And we see that in the parable of the two sons, or the prodigal son. The inheritance that the father gives, he gives it away for, he's the older brother. He's the true older brother, Christ. He gives it to the younger brother, us, who have wasted away, who have used everything in this good earth for our own pleasure. And he says, because I love you, Father, I will love them and I will give them my inheritance. So we see that in the first, in the first few verses. Now, the Lord as Redeemer, this is just a prologue, this this portion that we just recapitulated. Now check out what this happens now when we digest the meat of the chapter. Because God is calling back Genesis. He's saying, this is what I'm going to do. And then he explains to Moses what his plan is. And there's going to be two bookends. Look at this. The first is the God of the promised seed. He's going to explain his plan of redemption. To Moses. And then the second, we'll look at it in a minute. The mighty work of redemption. Okay, not enough space. So these two bookends are going to repeat themselves. Let me write them again. Promise and mighty work. 
Okay. So where do we see these things? In verse 6. What does it say? Anybody who can read that verse? What does it say? Very good. So he he begins. How does he self-identify? Remember, this chapter is about God's self-identification. We're going to be reminded of what his name means. We've forgotten that from creation. So he's going to reintroduce himself and say, this is what I'm going to do. And the first thing he references is what? The God of the promised seed, right? Now, in verse 7 through 12, somebody read that. Very good. Very good. Now, we see in verse 16, what happens there? Somebody read it. I'll read it. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, has appeared to me. Right? And then verse 17, And I promise that I will bring you out of affliction. He repeats the same thing. Now, what's smack in the middle in between these two themes? Verse 14. What does it say? Mm. God also said to Moses, say to the, to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, etc., etc., etc. Okay. So, right in the middle, in verse 14, what do we have? We have the name of Yahweh. I'm going to write Hebrew here. (laughs) Okay. So, this is right smack in the middle. And we're going to go through some of the details in between the two themes. But what's interesting about this is that this is the same way that God set up the camp. He is smack in the middle of his people. And he sets up the tribes around him and their special privileges to certain tribes, like the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Judah. They have certain accesses to different levels of the camp. So God is saying something about himself here, and he is setting up how he is going to be remembered how he is going to be valued. So this word, and this, Pastor Phil used this last Sunday, where he said that when God says his name or self-discloses himself, it's like a whisper. 
And the reason why, because the, the Hebrew, there's no real vowel pointings. This is a consonantal structure from, from left to right. This is a yod, so it's yeah. This is a hey. This is a vav. V. Yahweh. That's his name. That's literally what you hear when God speaks his name. Amazing. That's the, the purest form. So, when God, when God reveals himself, when he speaks about himself, every detail matters. Every detail matters. So, we see that his self-disclosure in the chapter, in the very middle of the, of the, of the chapter, he says, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations, in verse 15. So this is going to be the way he's going to be, that he's going to set up camp. This is the way that the people of Israel are going to approach God. God is going to be in the middle, in the midst of them. Now to break down a little bit of the themes of redemption. So we have the structure. To generations and not just individuals. Why do you think that's important to God? He begins with this, and then at the second repetition, he starts with it. The God of the promise seed. Why is that important to God? That he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why is that? Why would he mention that? Any thoughts? No? Okay. Continuity. Generational continuity is what she's saying. Very good. Very good. That's that he's sovereign. I can't really write anymore because this is so small. <laughs> uh, we need to get a bigger board. Um, so, yes, very good. That he is sovereign over all. That he is a God of the generations. It's not just about your individual faith. Think about that. A lot of what we experience today is radical individualism. Our faith, our experience, my adventure, my whatever it might be. But God here is saying, the mighty work of redemption begins with family. Begins with the generational promise. In fact, in Deuteronomy, one of the tests and measures of your individual faith was actually not measured in your confession. It was measured in the sacrifice that you would do for the next generation. That's why Deuteronomy 6 is such an essential passage of teaching the next generation who is Yahweh and his mighty works. Write it on your walls everywhere because that's going to be the measure of your faith. We don't think in those terms anymore. We just want to have my own experience isolated from the body, completely devoid of, of the community that God has set up for your walk. Just because you in your heart, in the privacy of your consciousness, say that you believe in God. That's not the way this works. God has set up not only a generational aspect to all of this, because it's, it's central to everything that he does, but there's an institution. There's a patriarchal institution, and I'm using that word in a positive sense. Abraham, Isaac. Very good. 
So that's an important aspect that we have to revisit. And I think that's, that's worth mentioning. And it's not only important to God, because he begins with that. He says, this is not new. I am not new. I'm not coming out of nowhere. I'm the, God's, I'm the God of your fathers. Fatherhood. All, all, the, all the things that we've lost today about fatherhood is, is important to the Lord as our eternal father. And so, for the mighty work of redemption, we see the first thing he mentions in verse 7, that he sees our afflictions, that he hears our cries, and he knows our sufferings. God is not far off. Sensory perception is just the beginning of his identity with his people. How does this end? It begins with sensory perception. But how does redemptive history end? It ends with God tabernacling among us in John chapter 1. God himself condescends to us to see our afflictions, yes, to feel them, to be in the mud. Not only that that he's hearing, he's seeing the affliction, he becomes the affliction. He who knew no sin becomes sin on our behalf. So God is a God of generation. He is a God that is identified with His people and He hears our hurtings. In verse 8, what does it say? Somebody read the verse. Mm. And the Jebusites. I know, it's a mouthful. (laughs) But why is that a mouthful? This is important, because he mentions it two times, right? Condescension. That's the first thing. He comes down. He comes down. Not only in the glory of the mountain, but in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he's going to do what? He's going to condescend, and he's going to deliver. Okay? Grace delivers. Grace is not just about, okay, forgiveness of sin, deliverance. That you were in a state of sin and misery and you have been delivered into an estate of blessed salvation. Shorter catechism, okay? Those two things, this is what grace does. There is no grace that happens in the ether. There is no grace that is easy believed and not lived. No. It's closely tied to the act of redemption of God coming down, delivering us, and then bringing us up. In this case, in this context, is the election of Israel among the nations. But God knowing the nations should give you a clue also. His naming them, his knowing them. Later in redemptive history, we see in the book of Isaiah that those very nations that God names here are the nations that he is going to call through the vocation of Israel, up into his glory mountain. That the very purpose of the New Testament is to reach the nations. So God mentioning them is not just only highlighting Israel's special place and saying, I'm going to bring you up 
Okay? This, these are very, these are very, very important terms that highlighted that idea of from the misery, the deliverance up into a special place among the nations. And then through their vocation as a kingdom of priests, the nations will be called unto God to stream up into the mountain, according to Isaiah chapter 2. So we have condescension, we have deliverance, and we have a bringing up. And then in verse 10, a deliverer is sent. We have that plan. Condescension, deliverance, and a bringing up. And then who's going to do the work? Verse 10. No, read it. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God is going to work through a representative. He's going to work with through a deliverer that's going to be sent. God sends Adam to face the first Pharaoh, the serpent king and Satan, as the representative of God. Will you crush his head for his lies? He did not. So God pulls back. Again, he alludes back to what had happened in those two or three chapters. And now Moses is going to go, you're going to go to the serpent king and you're going to do what I'm going to tell you because I'm going to be with you. Covenant of grace. God himself will be with his deliverer. A deliverer united to God in verse 12. And he said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So God will be with his deliverer. His deliverer will fulfill the work of redemption. And there's going to be a sign of that mighty work. What is this? What do we celebrate every Sunday here? The Lord's table, right? And in baptism, excuse me, a little sick. And in baptism, a sign of God's mighty work. Every Sunday we hear the gospel preached and we have the gospel tasted. And then, that's the first, that's the first section of the chapter. Then you have the name and then you have the God of the promise seed again in verse 16. And then in verse 18, there's a new detail. And they will listen to your voice and you and the elders of Israel, of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt. And say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Can someone please look for John chapter 10, verse 27. John 10, 27. Mm. And they will listen to your voice. They will listen to your voice because they know your voice. That fatherly voice that calls not only in the garden, but that will respond in positive by the work of God himself. He calls and he also enables us to hear his voice. And to respond positively to that voice through the work of 
the Holy Spirit. And then, in verse 20, back in Exodus 3, look at this new detail. So, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in you. After that, he may let you go. Somebody also look for John, 20, John 10, verse 29. What does it say? The hand that smashes Egypt is the hand that will preserve his people. That same hand that crushes his enemies is the same hand that is gentle, that loves, that protects, that sustains. So we hear the voice and we see the hand. And at the end of the chapter, verse 21, what what does this all lead up to? And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put on them your sons and your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Someone read to me Matthew chapter 12, verse 29. Matthew 12. Verse 29. We're almost done. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first finds a strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. There you go. The plundering of Egypt, the stripping of all things that were stolen from the Lord, that belonged to the Lord, is the same house that Jesus Christ is plundering. When he comes in his ministry, the nations are being deceived by Satan. It is his house, frankly. And when Jesus comes and works his mighty work of redemption, he plunders the strong man's house. He takes his goods. And he binds him. The work of Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension up into the right hand of the Father is God plundering his house and making for him a people of every tribe, of every tongue, and of every nation. And that is the mighty work of God from beginning to end. We see it in Exodus chapter 3 and we see it in the entirety of the New Testament. God will be worshipped. And this is the way that he is going to do it. All right? So, any questions, comments? We will begin the book the next time I'm here, which is like in three weeks. Because next week we have a congregational meeting, right, Paul? Yeah. But, with that said, I hope I've uh, whet your appetite, I guess. The, the book is called Exodus Old and New. You will see all these themes better explained by Dr. Morales. All right, let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you because you have redeemed for yourself a people and that you will accomplish these things because your name is in them and that we will remember your name. That mighty name who created all things, that mighty name who who will redeem all things as well. Bless this time of fellowship in Christ's name. Amen.